Lord, we just pray in this moment that you would pour out your Spirit upon us uh, and open up your Word to us, that we would find more of you and learn more about ourselves in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Right. Could we switch to uh, my laptop? Thank you. Oh. Uh, last week, we began to do this little series running into Advent on Revelation, and uh, I told you the first three chapters of Revelation are almost like a separate book from chapter four onwards. Uh, it's a set of letters written to seven churches. Um, and at the beginning of chapter four, it's almost like uh, part two or something. And it, it starts with these words where uh, the Lord says to John, who writes the words of Revelation, I will show you what must take place. And there's a reason for God wanting. This is all happening probably around the end of the century. Uh, John himself, who was one of Jesus' disciples, is now really quite elderly. Uh, and uh, it's almost like the last thing that's going to be written by one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And uh, it's, it's kind of, you need to hear this. You need to see this because this is going to help you through whatever length of time it's going to take uh, for the Lord to come back. So it starts off with, I will show you what must take place. And part of the purpose uh, of why John was writing this down, apart from uh, God having told him to write it down, and Jesus was speaking a lot of this, uh, because there's a lot of it, if you have one of those Bibles that has Jesus' words in red, a lot of it uh, is direct quotation from Jesus revealing this to John. And what uh, the purpose of the book is, is to try to change the landscape or, sorry, the faith landscape of the people living at the end of the first century right through to when Jesus comes back. Now, I say the faith landscape because it isn't really just about, well, sorry, it is about environment and everything, of course, but it, it's about changing what's going on in the hearts and minds of the people of God through the centuries. And I tried to paint a picture last week of the landscape or the environment in which John found himself. And he's living at the end of the first century uh, under the might of the Roman Empire, and it's an all-consuming, all-present, uh, all-squashing thing upon the cultures and the peoples uh, who lived in those days. And it was a landscape that perhaps, in terms of faith, could have been incredibly difficult. So John himself is living in a penal colony that he's been sent to because he was preaching about this Messiah. And in the eyes of the first Christians, this Messiah rivaled Caesar. For, uh, remember, Jesus even said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, uh, but give to God what's God's. And what he was really saying was, but don't give Caesar anything more than what is Caesar's. Yeah, it's all God's. Anyway, that sort of revolution was continuing in their thinking, and therefore uh, lots of Christians were being persecuted, and many of them were going to lose their lives in the next few decades. So part of what John was writing down was to try to give them a faith perspective on what God was doing. Uh, so something quite different. Now, that's idyllic, isn't it? 
although I'm hoping it's got central heating for when the snow comes around and all of that. But anyway, little house in the prairie stuff. But what, what, were, what John was trying to do was to raise faith and encouragement and strength in the followers of Jesus so that no matter what would come, they would be able to see the light of God shining into this thing. And I think this applies today then because the world we're living in continues to be incredibly difficult. Now, for us, living on the edge of South Belfast, there are things that aren't that difficult, but there are many things are difficult. Many things aren't working uh, the way we would like them to be working. Uh, but could I uh, share this wee picture with you? Do you see the wee flower? It's out there. Have, how many of you have spotted that? Oh, look at you. Oh, wonderful. It's just at the corner. Yeah, uh, right behind Sam, just out there on the corner. And there's a, 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 a curbstone broken. And that's been there since the summer. And I glance at it most weeks when I remember. Because no matter how much the rain is pouring down, no matter how much the leaves are falling off the trees, that one wee flower continues to say, there's hope, right? There's a summer yet to come. I'm hoping it's not plastic and it's been stuck in there by somebody. <laughs> but don't, you see, if you go out there, don't stand on that. Right? Just let, let that keep going because it's a wee sign to us like revelation that the sun will come up yeah, it will all, well, I'll come to that in a wee moment. The other thing when you're reading, uh, so when you read Revelation, you need to see that's what it's about. It's about stirring hope and faith in us. It's not about frightening us. It's not about frightening the world. It's about stirring something of God and of life and of His mercy and grace in our hearts. But when you're reading it, you also need to be able to decode it a little bit because it's written in very strange language and images at times. Now, I struggled at school, I have to be honest, with English literature. And it was all because of Dylan Thomas, who was a poet, who wrote this. When all my five and country senses see, the fingers will forget green thumbs and mark how through the half moon's vegetable eye, husk of young stars and handful zodiac, love in the frost is paired and wintered by. It's wonderful, is it? Confusing, okay. Um, Janice isn't watching this now. I fancied a girl at, in about fifth form in school. <laughs> And she loved Dylan Thomas, and uh, she wrote this in a card and sent it to me, and I pretended I liked it. I had no idea what it was about, and I couldn't figure out, is this a plus positive, or is this a negative? Is she telling me to go away, or is she telling me she'd like to be friends? I couldn't, I had no idea. It needs to be decoded. I just couldn't decode it, right? What about this? Do you see this at the end of movies and the end of TV programs? Uh, do you see the numbers, at the, the letters at the bottom? You're familiar with those? Yeah. Roman numerals. And maybe at school you were introduced to these and you've always thought, I never really got that, but I just nodded when they talked about it. Uh, there's the Roman numerals uh, from one to a thousand. And the way you put, you, you put the letters together, uh, and that's how you write numbers if you lived in the first century. Do you notice the biggest number known to humankind was a thousand? So if you wanted two thousand, you had to write MM. If you wanted three thousand, you had to write MMM. 
Now, it doesn't work for adding up and multiplying and things, but it's, it's how they counted things. So, Revelation, I'm only telling this as a wee example when you're reading Revelation, the number 1,000 comes up a number of times, and another even bigger number comes up. 144,000 comes up. And this number, we're told, is the number of people who will be welcomed by God into His salvation. You're thinking, what on earth does that mean? Is it only 144,000? Right, do some mathematics, somebody in the room, some factors of 144,000. Okay, yes? 12 by… 12 by 1,000. Look at that. Let's do a wee bit of decoding, because you can do this. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, what does 12 represent? The tribes. The tribes, your history, the 12 tribes of Israel, all the faithful of God through the Old Testament. If you had become a Christian in the first century, what does the second 12 represent? The 12 disciples or apostles. So, the first 12 is all the faithful in the Old Testament up to Christ. The second 12 is all the faithful uh, from Christ to the end, times a thousand, the biggest number anybody could think of. So, it's not 144,000. It's the faithful to God through all generations, no matter how big the number gets. Yeah? A thousand in their days. You remember when we did wee pink sweets, we used to call millions? because uh, you couldn't count them. There's so many of them. A million has become something that many people get these days, right? Uh, so, we use words like gazillions when we're trying to think of a big number. That's what a thousand was. And when you read a thousand in Revelation, you need to decode it to mean huge, huge numbers. It's not ever meant to be an exact number. Here's another decoding. The number seven comes up all the time in Revelation. It's not actually a number at all. Uh, well, it is a number, but it's supposed to be code for of God. So, the seven spirits around the throne are the Spirit of God, the seven angels, the angel of God, the seven lampstands, the light of God, the seven churches at the start, the church of God right? Every time you see seven, it identifies whatever this is. It finds its root and its heart in God, right? That will make a wee bit more sense. So, I want us to look at four verses today from Revelation 15, and we read one or two of these earlier in that canticle. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels, the angel of God, with the seven last plagues, the last plagues of God, or the last plagues that God has control over. Last, it really means final, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb." This is the song they sang. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. We've already been singing some of this today. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. 
all nations will come and worship before you because your judgments have been revealed. Okay, and here's the tenuous link to where Janice started at this morning. God is telling us that there is a time, and we'll go back to those complicated verses in a wee moment. God is telling us that the end of what must happen is judgment. Yeah? That's what is up ahead. Judgment. All nations will come and worship before you because your judgments have been revealed. Right? That's right at the end. Now, I need to paint a little picture for you to help you understand what judgment is about. Pretend you're living in a western cowboy town, right? Uh, and I didn't make this up. I, I stole this out of a book, this little illustration. And the judges uh, weren't resident in every little village in town. They traveled around from town to town. And in the, in the months or whatever the gap was between the judge coming to town, all sorts of things would have gone wrong. For example, one farmer would have sold to another farmer a cow, and uh, the second farmer, the one who bought the, the cow, uh, could have a complaint against the first one, this cow doesn't yield as much milk as you told me it does. Have to wait till the judge comes to town to sort that out. Someone else has moved a fence or opened a fence up, and their sheep are now grazing and watering them, uh, drinking water out of someone else as well. And someone says, you can't do that. You need to put your fence back up. And they agree, have to wait for the judge to come to town. And all sorts of things like that could go on. So by the time the judge gets to town, everybody gathers in whatever that is they're gathered in, uh, and they have all their complaints against one another, and the judge sorts them out. Let me read to you what uh, is in the wee book. The guy who wrote this, the comment says this. Judgment will be done. Chaos will be averted and order will be restored. The village as a whole will heave a sigh of relief. Justice has been given out. The world has returned into balance. A grateful community will thank the judge from the bottom of its collective heart. You see, that's what judgment is about at the end. It's about restoration. It's about correcting all the things that have gone wrong. It's about redeeming everything that is broken. It's about correcting things. It's about putting balance back in. It's about lifting up those who have been squashed. It's an entirely different image from the one we have of judgment, where we car in fear at the thought of what might be done to us. It's one where freedom and balance and restoration is brought back to the world. Why else would all the nations come and worship before you? Because your judgments have been revealed. That's not something, it doesn't look like something to be terrified of. John was living in a world himself where judgment meant that, meant that, meant that. He's in a penal colony. Why would he not want the judgment of God to come? And our world is very broken. And revelation, rather than being something that should bring fear into our hearts, is something that should bring joy into our hearts, that judgment is coming. 
and the gracious, kind, generous judge will restore and redeem the whole of the world. Let me take you back to the start. Uh, That was verses 3 and 4, that song. But the first couple of verses. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Remember, seven means of God. Last or final, because with them, God's wrath is completed. Now, allow for the fact that John is uh, living in the first century, and the images that he's using are images that would have made sense to the people reading this. Uh, so, plagues meant something to Jewish people because their history, their greatest moment in their history, their greatest moment in how they came into being happened in a season of plagues when they were in Egypt, right? And the plagues were part of that process by which God and Pharaoh and Egypt and the Hebrews, because at that stage they hadn't become Israel, um, that interwovenness, that conflict and everything that went on, that actually led to their freedom and their release. And that in the first century right up to now, if anything in our world feels like plagues, it's because it's taking us to a new freedom, right? That God is trying to bring a new freedom into His world. Okay, so go with that. It's for them, any mention of plagues didn't make them think, oh no, it made them think, oh, the possibility of we might be set free.
That was a wee clip from Prince of Egypt. That's the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, being set free from Egypt, from slavery, and heading to their new and promised land. And it's very significant that the route to the promised land included a glassy sea. Remember last week, there was a glassy sea in front of the throne. Uh, the images were not, were not unfamiliar to these people because they knew their Old Testament story, the, the root of who they are. So they're being set free. Uh, judgment from God was a positive for them. Then we read on. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass. This is John writing in Revelation again. With a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. All right, so we're going back to that sea in a wee moment because that's part of what has to happen to the people of God is that we have to cross the sea. And it's those who are victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. The beast, uh, the Satan, the accuser, the tempter, and in the uh, Egypt world, the gods of the Egyptians were strange animals. Uh, the beast, the images of those that had been squashing them and getting them, you know, oppressing them. And in our world, the, the enemy of the saints, uh, the devil, really, who squashes us and accuses us and puts us down. Uh, but the sea has to be crossed, right? Wow. So again, John is using the, an image from their history of the, the crossing of the Red Sea and of the whole crowd, the gazillions, the thousands, making it to the far side to find their new life and their new place. He's changing the faith landscape of the church to believe just like way back at the beginning of Israel, there were these events and these things that would assault their faith, but that they would live through them and they would be victorious over them. They would have in God and in Christ and in the power of the Spirit, the ability to cross through that raging sea and come out on the other side to be victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And on the far side, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And way back in uh, Exodus, when they came through the sea and came out the other side, we're told that Miriam, the sister of Moses, sang a song. your people, Moses. They are free. There is a day coming when the Lord will come back, everything will be restored everything will be made new. And we live in the days when uh, the freedom from Egypt and from slavery is found by the blood of the Lamb, 
the cross of Christ. Remember the blood was put on the doorposts of the lamb, the, the lamb's blood on the doorposts. Then gone through the sea, and through the, which is represented by baptism in our world, and out on the other side into this new life as the people of God. And John is using images from their history to let the New Testament Christians know that what happened in historical in their historical world is what's happening in the faith and the spiritual world for us. It's the same freedom, washed in the blood, set free by the waters of baptism and the, the cleansing of God into our lives, so that we are free to live in the new land that as yet is promised but has not yet come. But one day it will. And do you notice, John, and I made it in great big letters, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses. But it isn't any longer just the song of Moses and Miriam and of the Israelites way back then. It's the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who died on the cross, the victory over everything that is evil and that is wrong and that is trying to destroy the world has already been won by the Lamb on the cross who rose from the dead. And the song that was sung, that we started with, we go back to it. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you because your judgments have been revealed. And they aren't those judgments, right? They're not those judgments. Here are the judgments of God on those who are in Christ, who have turned to Jesus. You are called. You are called. You are mine, says God. You're the children of God. You have purpose. You are forgiven. You have a future. And all the accusation and all the lies that come from Satan about who you are and about your worthlessness and your purposelessness and the disappointing nature of our world are exactly lies. These are the judgments of God. Why would we fear the judgment of God when it will ultimately set us free and bring about the redemption and the recreation of the whole of the world? And next week, we're going to look a wee bit at what the new heaven and the new earth might be like.